Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, together as your people turn our ears to your word. We pray that your spirit would give our minds attentiveness that our hearts would be open to the good news of the gospel of your son, that we would um, embrace this message of resurrection, but also the difficult word of what it means to follow Jesus. We pray that your grace toward us in Christ, this free offer of life and forgiveness of sins, would be heard and remembered and embraced. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the challenges um, that we have today, um, and one of the challenges I have today on Easter, is the resounding success of Christianity throughout the world. Um, That is a challenge to us today because it makes what we're talking about seem unremarkable. Um, Christianity has been so triumphant and successful in spreading throughout the world Um, in in spreading the moral vision of Christianity, in spreading the doctrines of God and who Jesus is, that um, it is not remarkable to us. It it seems normal to talk about these things, uh, or or at least to be familiar with these things. Christopher Walken, who uh, wrote this book I've been reading recently, wrote that the triumph of Christianity has been so great that what was revolutionary is now unremarkable. Um, So the doctrine of incarnation, that God would become a man and take on human flesh and live a human life. Okay, that seems like something people might say or believe. 
The idea that someone would be raised from the dead to live forever immortally, um, that seems like, okay, that's an idea we've heard before. The idea that we should forgive our enemies, that we should love our enemies, that leaders should serve other people, these just seem like common sense. That we should care for the poor, that we should care for refugees, that that women have value and dignity, uh, that it's a virtue to be humble. These seem like common sense. They don't seem like they are unique, but they were utterly non-existent in the world until Jesus came onto the scene uh, beyond Israel. They were non-existent. And it's only through the spread of Christianity throughout the world um, that, that these things have come to be embraced by people. And we see this as normal. So preaching on Easter is a challenge because I'm trying to make clear today the revolution that is the resurrection. We've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew for uh, a couple of months now. We've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus or to be a disciple. Um, We've been using this term apprentice because being a follower of Jesus is not just about learning ideas, but it's about receiving Jesus' teaching, imitating his way of life, and then developing his character, and then beginning to participate with Jesus in the things that he's doing in the world. And we looked at this sermon Um, The Sermon on the Mount, this radical message that Jesus gave where he proclaims his kingdom. And he says that it's essentially upside down from what we expect. It's not the way that the world is ordered normally. And so he's reversing everything. It's not like any other arrangement or polity in the history of the world. And so what we've been seeing is that following Jesus is counterintuitive. um, And that's true even now for us today. Today, what I want us to do is zoom out a little bit from the the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at and look at the entire Gospel of Matthew. This is going to be a four-hour sermon. I'm just kidding. We're going to look at the whole Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I want us to look at the identity of Jesus and the meaning of the resurrection in light of the whole, right? Um, You know, we all all love success stories, right? You've probably watched some documentaries of, of highly successful people. Uh, I watched one a couple, uh, I guess about a year or so ago, Michael Jordan. It was just amazing to see his life. But I watched it knowing, you know, his great success at the end. And it's great to see how he got there. We always like to hear success stories because we want to know how they got to the place of success, right? And Jesus, in many ways, the story of him resurrected and ascended at the right hand of the Father, that's a success story. But let's go back and look at the arc of his life. And to see how we got there, because that matters, right? When you hear about a successful person, you want to know, did they get there because they inherited everything that they they have? Or um, did they get it by um, injustice? Did they mistreat people and and scam people? Um, Did they get there by just pure luck? Or did they suffer? Did they sacrifice? Did they use ingenuity? How did they get there? That's what I want us to look at today as we think about the resurrection. And so as we think about following Jesus, we're looking at the whole arc of his life to say, What does this tell us about who he is, about his kingdom, and of course, what it means to be his follower? How does his kingdom advance in the world? So, Gospel of Matthew is the first thing that I want to look at and give us an overview. So, let's start there. Matthew, uh, his whole gospel, is primarily aimed at telling us who Jesus is, namely, that he is the son of David. He is the son of David. Um, David is the great king in Israel's history. 950 years before Jesus, David was king. And he had the golden age of Israel's history. And God promised David that his descendants would have an eternal kingdom. That the throne of Israel would always rest with David's family. And one day there would be a great king who would reign forever and ever. And so when um, Matthew writes his gospel, he is 
intentionally trying to tell us that Jesus is this son of David. He is the one that God has anointed to be the king of Israel. He's the one that all the promises of God are being fulfilled in. He is the one that our hope of restoration should rest upon. Now you might say, well, I don't, why, do I, why should I care about that? Well, just remember that these things that were said about this coming king were said 900 years earlier, 600 years earlier, 400 years earlier than when Jesus came on the scene. And the sorts of things that were said about this king are the sorts of things that no person could intentionally um, manufacture in their life to arrange their life to fit all those promises. Um, And what we see in Jesus is this fulfillment of many, many things that are said about this coming king. um, They all come true in his life. That's what Matthew wants to show us. So um, as we think about this, I want us to see that Jesus's life, Matthew is telling us, fits the same pattern, the same arc as King David's life. Mm -hmm. So first, let me talk about this first part of Matthew's gospel um, in chapters one through three, where we see the appointment of Jesus as king and the contest that develops as a result of this. And this, again, like I said, is, is imitating David's life. David was anointed when he was a young man by a prophet named Nathan, And he was said, you are going to be the next king of Israel. And then as the story continues and his life continues, he has this great victory over this giant, Goliath. You've probably heard of him. And then he is brought into Saul's court. And there's this rivalry that develops between King Saul and the future king, David. The same thing is patterned in Jesus' life. Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy. It's this um, story about the descendants, or excuse me, the ancestors of Jesus. And right up front, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of David. That's the first name he lists. Then he goes on to, to mention really the father of the faith, Abraham. So, But he puts David first. One commentator says this genealogy, and the entire gospel for that matter, is about how Jesus is David's son. And so as you look at the genealogy, there are these three sets of 14 generations, and they all really focus on David. It goes from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and then from the exile to the new David. And so David is really present in all three of these chapters of the 14 generations. Uh, We've been reading through this in home group, and some people have asked, why are there 14 generations? Do we know there are more than that from other parts of the Bible? Well, Matthew takes the number 14, which in... um, In Hebrew, each of the letters of the alphabet are also numbers. And when you add David's name up, it comes out to 14. And so right built into the structure of this genealogy is David's name. When we get to chapter 2 and we hear the birth narrative of Jesus, we learn that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This is David's city. We hear about a star that's overhead, which fulfills the prophecy of Balaam, who talked about a star, a ruler that would come from Israel. David, uh, Jesus is visited by the Magi, who are wise men, but also rulers like kingly figures. And then we hear the story of Herod being jealous of Jesus' birth. And that's also just like how David, um, his rival Saul, became jealous of him. In Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus baptized, which is an anointing. Among other things, it's an anointing. It's a setting Jesus apart as the king of Israel. So this first chapter in Israel's gospel, uh, in Matthew's gospel, follows the first chapter of David's life, its appointment and its contest. But then it quickly moves into the next part of David's life, which is exile. 
Jesus spends the bulk of his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles, is how Matthew describes it in chapter 4, verse 15, which echoes um, Isaiah chapter 9. Galilee, at this time in Israel's history, is associated with Gentiles. It's, it's part of the historic kingdom of Israel, but it's in the north now. It's been overrun by Romans largely. It's a Gentile-ish region. And that matches David's life. David, after he fled the court of Saul and left Israel, he had to wander in the wilderness. He was chased. He was hunted. He even went to the Philistines, this non-Israelite people. And as he was in this exile, he was gathering people that would follow him. Uh, One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament and David's story is 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. And this is when David is running. He's on the run. And it says, everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David and he became commander over them. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this part of Matthew's gospel Um, from chapter four all the way up to chapter 16. As Jesus is in a, a sort of exile of his own, he is portrayed as a teacher and as the shepherd of Israel and as the great healer of Israel. He is the living embodiment of God's law and he's teaching everyone the wise way of life. He is the shepherd of Israel, the leader of Israel, showing compassion on those who are like sheep without a shepherd. He's feeding them with God's word. He's showing mercy to the lost sheep of Israel, and he is healing them. He is the great healer. Five times when he heals in Matthew's gospel, it's in the context of someone calling him the son of David. And it's in the background here, Ezekiel chapter 34, where Ezekiel saw the shepherds of Israel who were not caring for God's people. They were not feeding God's people. They were feeding on them. And God says um, that he would seek them out and he would heal them. And um, they were wandering and um, he would set David over them. And so there's this echo of Jesus is the healer of Ezekiel 34. He is the David who has been appointed over them. So that's the exile portion of his life. But then in chapter 16 to 28, we see the enthronement of Jesus. And this journey to Jerusalem begins. Just like David, when Saul died, David returned and he wins these battles and he takes power and he enters into Jerusalem as the king. And Jesus does the same thing. He returns to Jerusalem, to the city of the king. And yet there is a twist here. David comes conquering with armies But Jesus begins to embody the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 through 55. He begins to embody this this, um, dimension, this forsakenness of David in the wilderness of Psalm 22. He enters Jerusalem on a donkey, not with a war horse. He is rejected by the religious leaders and they oppose him. He eventually is betrayed by his friends like Judas, which also echoes David's betrayal by his son Absalom and the counselor Ahithophel. He is tried where he remains silent and an innocent suffering before this unjust court. He is mocked and beaten and forsaken. And Jesus' throne that he ascends to is a cross. His reign is established through his death. He is stripped naked and he's given a scarlet robe to mock him. And he's given a crown of thorns and he's beaten with reeds, which in the, in the Psalms represent like a false scepter that a king would hold. He is spit on rather than kissed in homage. And there's a sign on the cross that says king of the Jews. Everything about his death suggests that this is a throne. It's an ironic throne. Jesus ascends and is lifted up on the cross, but he is taken down into death. And then he is raised up into resurrection life. So God's kingdom 
Matthew tells us, is established through death and then resurrection. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is God's king, but his kingship is not like any other king in the history of the world. He doesn't lord over other people. The arc of his story is down and then up. It's the shape of a cross. The pattern of his kingdom is death before life, suffering before victory, shame before honor, loss before gain, weakness before strength. Jesus' kingdom is cruciform, cross-shaped. He wins by suffering as a servant, not violently taking over. Now, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for those of us who um, are following Jesus and trusting in him? That's the next thing I want us to see, the shape of following Jesus. And I want to back up in this story right to the middle where there is this hinge between Jesus' exile and his enthronement. And I I read this whole passage, but I'm only going to hone in on just a few verses. But let me just review what I read a second ago. Jesus is talking to his closest disciples, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter rightly says, you are the Christ. You're the one that God has anointed as the king of Israel, that all the hopes of Israel are in you. You are the son of the living God. That's right. He gets it right on. Um, But what does that mean? (laughs) Jesus begins to say to the disciples, here's what's got to happen. I have to suffer and die. And at this point, Jesus um, uh, goes aside with Peter. Peter, excuse me, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, absolutely not. This cannot happen. You cannot die. Don't say such a thing. And Jesus rebukes him and says that he is aligning himself with the adversary of God's kingdom, Satan. He, doesn't, he knows that Jesus is the Christ, but he does not understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom or his kingship. He wants victory, but he does not want suffering and death. He wants to win. He wants to march on Jerusalem, but he does not want to follow Jesus where Jesus says he must go. And like Peter, many of us believe that Christianity is the solution to avoiding our pain and our grief and our suffering and our losses in life and ultimately death. And while that is ultimately true, that Jesus does relieve us from those things, we do not escape them. We pass through them in Christ. So look at what Jesus says about what it means to follow him in verses 24 through 26. Hone in on these verses. Let me read them again. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What Jesus is saying here, after he's made it clear who he is and what he must do, he says, if you want to follow me, that's what he, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, be my disciple, what must you do? You have to deny yourself. He's saying you have to die to your will. You have to let go of your sins. You have to let go of your pursuits in life. And you have to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Everyone knew at this time that those who were condemned to die had to carry their own cross to the place where they would be crucified, just like Jesus did. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow me, even to the point of being put to death. Later on, he says that you have to lose your life. This is a total reorientation of your life 
to Jesus. It is self-renunciation. It is following him, surrendering our entire lives to God's will, following Jesus into weakness, into suffering, and into death. Following Jesus requires that we lay down everything. And this does not mean that every single Christian is going to be martyred, but it does mean that every single Christian must follow Jesus wherever he takes us. We have to lose the life that we are living to be radically reoriented towards where Jesus is taking us. The very same arc of Jesus' life has to become the pattern of our lives. Now, how is this possible? What could compel us to lose our lives? Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. The only way that's possible is if in losing your life, even to the point of death, we have confidence that we will be raised up. Right? Imagine you have a heart that is broken and the doctor says, um, this is, this is going to go out at any minute. We have to give you a new heart. We're going to put you on the table. We're going we're gonna to kill you, basically. We're going to take your heart out and you're going to have to be dead so we can put a new heart in you. That's effectively what Jesus is saying. If you want to live, you have to die. But don't worry, I'll raise you up. The resurrection of Jesus ensures that all those who follow Jesus, even to the point of death, all those who put their hope in Jesus will surely live again. Jesus, the son of David, is the suffering servant. God became like us that we might become like him. God in Christ entered into our death in order that we would live. And all of us, this world is, is shaped by billions of people living for themselves, right? We are, we are defined by greed and self-interest. That is the natural way that we live our lives. The Bible calls this sin, and fundamentally it is pride. We live in self-interest because we believe we are the most important people in our lives. And that sort of way of life brings death everywhere it goes, all throughout the world. The world is under death. Jesus comes into the world, lives this perfect life of love, surrendering his life, living out of love for other people, surrendering to death on a cross, and he dies in our place, but rises again from death so that we no longer have to be defeated and condemned in death. The promise of the resurrection is what makes it possible for us to move and to follow Jesus into death. And so the last thing I want to see today is the cross-shaped life. The cross-shaped life, being a disciple of Jesus is cross-shaped. It's a steady and constant movement towards various types of death in order that we might rise. That is the Christian life. The arc of our lives, the pattern of our lives is like Jesus's life where we move into death in order that we might live. Some, some people call this the, the J-curve, right? Think about you know, you're here, and in order to be up here, you have to go down in order to go up, right? That's the arc of the Christian life, and it's counterintuitive because all of us, you know, we naturally want to avoid pain and suffering, right? Um, that, that's just how we are all built. Nobody wants pain, right? We avoid it at all costs. But um, I think most of us know that if you want to grow up and be a mature person, you have to endure pain. You have to go through pain in order to, to mature. That's fundamental to growing as a mature person, right? You have to um, defer instant gratification, delay that so that you can have gratification later. That's, uh, later. that's entering into a sort of death, right? Likewise, when we avoid pain, that prevents us from growth in Christ. 
He calls us to take up our cross, to move into death, to experience resurrection. Think about this in a number of areas. In, in personal growth, if, if you want to heal in your life, then um, rather than avoiding the shame that exists in you, which we all naturally do, we want to shove it down, ignore it, compensate it for it, hide it in some way. Instead of shoving that down, we enter into that shame. We're honest about it. We bring it into the light. We get help and healing for it. That is what brings wholeness and honor. If you want to grow in knowledge, you have to admit you don't know anything. You have to reject pride. You've got to humble yourself and say, I'm ignorant here. And only then can you grow in knowledge and understanding. Same with um, developing character. If you want to be a strong and sturdy person of character who can love, you have to um, enter into suffering. You can't just live a life of comfort pain-free all the time, right? Personal growth requires little deaths in order that we might live. Think about your relationships. If you want intimate relationships and connection with other people, you have to enter into weakness and vulnerability. You can't grow in deep relationships with people if you keep walls up all the time. You never take risks of being rejected. You have to go into weakness and vulnerability, and only there can you grow and develop connections of deep intimacy with other people. When you're in a conflict, oh, when we're in a conflict, and you know how it gets sometimes when two people just are hardened against one another and there's no way forward and you're both digging in to um, what you think is going on in the relationship, what breaks that? It's only by going into weakness and apologizing and not being defensive, being open to understanding the other person, and only then can there be healing in the relationship. Same with the disagreement. Only if you take humble curiosity rather than pride can you come to understand another person and grow closer together. Only if we're honest with people, right? Which is, which is a scary thing to do. It can be like a little death. We, we don't try to please them in what we're saying. Sometimes we say hard truths. That can be like a little death. But that death leads to trust and um, being a person that others can depend upon. Think about seeking happiness in your life. If you want to be happy, you can't just aim yourself at happiness. You have to go down into service, not consumption. And that's what brings ultimate satisfaction in your life. If you want real meaning, you have to deny yourself, not live trying to be true to yourself. That's going to bring great satisfaction in your life. What I'm trying to get at here is that cruciformity, cross-shaped living, is fundamental to living a a flourishing life. And it is only possible to live that way if we believe the resurrection is true. If we believe that Jesus brings us through death into life, humility leads to exaltation, service leads to true greatness, loving and forgiving enemies leads to peace, repentance leads to forgiveness, confession leads to breaking free of our addictions, weakness leads to strength, Embracing shame leads to honor. Self-denial leads to happiness. Suffering leads to glory. Death leads to life. That's the shape of the Christian life. The resurrection does not mean that now we get to avoid all pain and death. The resurrection means that all who believe in Jesus will live again. So friends, Jesus died for our sins and he rose again so that we can lose our lives in following him, knowing that we will live again. And so I want to issue to you an invitation, a challenge, and an encouragement. First, an invitation to anyone who wants to save their life. I assume that's everyone here. If you want to save your life, if you want to 
profit more than gaining the whole world, then I invite you to come to Jesus and die to the life that you're living. Repent of your sin and let go of a life that you have devoted yourself to, to this world, and receive the life and the world that Jesus gives you. Die to your own will, surrender to God's will, lose your life and give yourself to Jesus and he will raise you up. And friends, I gotta issue a warning here too. If you don't lose your life now, if you hold on to it and cling to the things you're pursuing, you will lose it forever. I didn't read this, but verse 27 says that Jesus is gonna come again and repay us for what we have done. If you don't lose this life, there will be judgment, there will be death. Secondly, I want to issue a challenge, especially if you are a Christian today. Do not forget that following Jesus is cross-shaped. It is so easy to do for us to follow Jesus. We know Jesus is the Christ, but just like Peter, we totally construe, misconstrue what his kingdom is like. Like, we forget that the cross comes before the resurrection. We forget that we have to die daily to ourselves, and then comes resurrection. Don't lose sight of that. Think about that as... I mean, we live in such a polarized culture today and there's so much talk about Christianity and public life and there's so many different types of churches out there and messages on Instagram and all. I mean, you're flooded with Christian ideas all the time. Look for the cross shape. That's how you know it's true Christianity. Look for the shape of the cross. Finally, I want to encourage you, especially if you are someone who is suffering. And you need to remember that there is no suffering There is no loss, there is no grief, there is no hardship, there is no trauma that proves that God is not real or that he does not love you. The deep darkness and injustice of the cross was not the final word. The resurrection means that there is light and life for those who trust in Jesus. Whatever cross, whatever death you are going through, do not forget that the resurrection can come if your faith is in Jesus. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. As we go to this meal, we remember and proclaim Christ's death, but we also anticipate a great feast. We anticipate the life that we will enjoy in God's presence at Christ's return. We remember that Christ gave his body and shed his blood for sin. He lost his life so that we might live and gain the whole world. And this meal promises the whole world to you and to and eternal life as well. So I invite you to eat and drink and to follow Jesus. Let us pray together.